And that's really good. All right. This morning, I want you to know in advance, I apologize. I probably have two sermons in one, so I may go a little bit long. I take a deep breath. And then exhale, give me grace, and let's just see where we go this morning. With that in mind, we're going to jump right in. We are in our fourth week of momentum, right? This season that we're in, momentum, moving forward together in 2022. Do you consider Vintage 242 to be your church home? If Vintage 242 is your church home, I am asking that you would please take time to listen to all of the messages that are part of this momentum series, Okay. Uh, if you're not part of Vintage, then I just invite you to listen to them, right? But if you are part of the church, I'm here, here's the reason, and I think you all get it. There's no guilt. I just simply, it's super helpful because we feel like we're trying to go somewhere in this season, and we use Sunday morning messages as part of that vehicle to share that. And so in listening, it creates a sense of purpose and of oneness and unity because we're all speaking the same language. So this, even this past week, it was super fun because I was listening to people, and they were kind of using language. They were using language from the past three weeks in our conversation, the things that God was doing and telling the stories. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so good, Jesus, right? Because even as we talk about this idea of momentum, I'm hearing from people, and they're telling me their own stories of, and using their own language to say the same things as momentum. And, right, I'm using the word momentum, but I don't really care what words you use as long as it somehow attaches to it of, like, hey, it's a difficult season, but God's moving, God's faithful, there's momentum, whatever it may be. Be. That's all I'm hoping for from you, okay? And so, again, I'm just asking you to go listen to those pieces. Again, it kind of gets us all in the same pot and the same page. gets us unified and thought and in purpose, and we can experience God together and, and celebrate what he has in store. Celebrate what he has in store for you and what he has in store for his church as a whole. So as I prayed, to, as I prayed for this morning, began to pray the message this morning, I had, a, I had a thought, and it was this. Momentum, it's not on the screen, but it's a thought that I had. Momentum happens on a road full of obstacles. As I was thinking through this message, and I was thinking about church, and I was thinking about the movement of God, and I was thinking about the purposes of God and experience of God, I, I, I always think about, like, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, to get momentum, it means, like, I, I had this picture of, like, one of those, like, Arizona desert highways, right, with the mesas on the side, some going, the sun going down, and it's just like this kind of, like, gentle down and gentle ups, right, but you can just see for miles, and we think of momentum and, and Jesus moving and the faithfulness of God and his power, and we start to think like this type of road, but what I feel like I was saying, no, 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 it's momentum is on a road full of obstacles. And I began to see this other path, it was like a meandering path, right? And, and over here, there was like a, that's a dry spot, right? And, and over here, there were like some, some potholes and some really big holes. And over here, this is the word I like, there were some marauders, right? They're over here hiding behind some trees, and they're getting ready to jump out and attack you, right? And over here, there's like this like, this like wet spot over here, we could slip, whatever it was, right? And, and I began to recognize, like, when we talk about momentum in the church, we live in a church culture that's been defined by a, a distant culture of comfort. Things are just easy. Right? We, we think, oh, God's power, God's good, and so if he's good, it's going to be good and easy. And I don't know about you, but I love when David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. So often we get lost in movement language, momentum language, because 
It's like when things are easy, yes, it's good, and there's momentum, but then you think as soon as something difficult happens, an obstacle arises, you're no longer on the path of momentum. Like, oh, and we shut down because we have this wrong view, this cultural view of comfort and of ease, and God's just saying, no, no, it's not that. Like, I'm not going to get mad at you. I'm not even mad. I'm just saying. This is not what it is. It's a, it's a meandering path with all sorts of obstacles. And on that path, as difficulties arise, I want you to know I'm still moving. And I'm still bringing momentum. And I'm still going to move in your life. And there's going to be this movement of my spirit in your life. Right? The journey of momentum was never meant to be easy. Not till we get to heaven. Right? Never meant to be easy. It won't be easy. It's going to be a battle. Because we live still in a fallen world. Can you all agree with that? Okay. So, again, all I'm trying to do is paint this picture. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think of, like, church language, and I think of pastors on Sundays, and they want people to get excited. So they paint this picture with a good heart. Say, God's going to do these things and never have the counterbalance. But even if he doesn't, Right? Even it's still hard, and all I'm getting at is this one, like, I'm just, I, I want to shepherd you in the place of this healthy tension, this, this reality of tension that we live in, that God is, there is momentum, God is moving, he's going to be faithful in your life, and it's going to be a journey of obstacles, and he's with you all the way in the middle of it, okay? All right. So, momentum's a word, again, we heard from the Lord, uh, stepping into 2022, uh, literally starting back in basically September, October, as I was praying unexpectedly, God began to speak about 2022, uh, and it was like, hey, we're going to end 2021, but 2022 is a year of momentum. It's something that we're believing for from God in faith. We're believing for momentum from God in faith, because we aren't necessarily seeing it right now on our daily basis, right? In the context and the life of the church, I'm not necessarily seeing the momentum of what I would expect, but by faith, I'm looking and believing and saying, all right, God, well, you spoke this word, but I am here, this is a beautiful piece, I'm seeing signs of it, right? The stories people are telling, I'm seeing these first fruits of God's movement, right? I'm, I'm seeing and hearing stories of people saying, it's hard, and then there's the but, and I'm like, that's it, right? I'm super thankful for that. In the moment that, yes, it's hard, but God is moving, but God is speaking, God is doing these things. And so we're by faith believing in God for this momentum that he wants to bring. And I want to say to you right this morning, no matter where, what's going on and where you are, if you're in the middle of like, I fell into one of the holes, man, that marauder Jim over there got me. I don't know what happened, man, right? But if your name's Jim, sorry. So it's like this whole dynamic, right, this thing. It's, and hand me, that, hand me that microphone just in case it starts to catch me. Yeah, I'm just going to get to that. Zach, give me my nerves. So. There we go. All right, so now in this, right, again, just recognizing Wherever you start with and wherever you are, we're not journey of obstacles. Momentum is occurring and God is moving in your life. And if you don't see it yet, by faith we see, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of the very things that we cannot see. I would invite you to release your expectations 
like the named expectations of what momentum looks like and just come to Jesus saying, God, I don't, I'm going to kind of give you my specifics and I just come with a level of expectancy. You do what you want to do and I'll just trust you for it. Right? So we come with expectancy, momentum, this word that God is doing, seeing signs pointing toward to it. And today what I want to do is I want to begin by building off of our primary takeaways from last week. You can put them up on the screen for me, Josh. Here they are. These are three things, that, these, these three takeaways from last week. Number one, the only way to build spiritual momentum is by being a people who cultivate the presence of God in our everyday life. Okay? The only way to build true spiritual momentum is by being a people who cultivate, give ourselves to invest time into the presence of God in our everyday life. Number two, God is a relational God. Who wants to be present with those that he loves? That's you. It's me. Okay? So God is a relational God who wants to be present with those that he loves. We, listen, we spent a long time, just me just kind of breaking down scripture for you to explain that to you of who God is as a, as a person. The third piece, we are a relational people who have been designed to be present with a relational God. You've been designed in his image. He's relational. That's why you're relational. But you've both been designed as a relational people to be present, therefore, with that relational God. If there's a reason for your your creation and your design, it revolves around those pieces. God's relational, God's relational, you're relational. We've been designed to be together with one another. Did you miss that, Mike? Yeah, put this point back up there real quick for Mike. I saw him put that camp. There you go. Real quick. Five, four, three. Okay, Mike, he's the slowest picture taker ever. Can you help him out? Kissy, can you help him out? He's struggling over there. All right. That's his daughter. All right. Now, this, this morning what I want to do is I'm going to spend a little more time, once again, kind of building this picture of who God is, the heart of God, and his desire to be in our presence. And then I'm going to name some obstacles that keep us from his presence. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, they're not, it's not an exhaustive list. I'm giving you a starting list. These, the starter list are just some things that are present in, present in my life, things I, I have to wrestle through or I've had to wrestle through. So I'm going to name just some of my obstacles I face, and I'm going to invite you to go spend time in God's presence and ask him, hey, God, what are my obstacles? My list is just a starter list to help you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so you don't go with the list feeling super guilty and shame-filled. No, you're a human being who has obstacles that you face, right? But I'm going to ask you to spend time in God's presence this week and say, all right, God, I want to be in your presence. What are the things that are keeping me from you? Okay? So here we go. God is a relational God who wants to be present with those he loves because he created, hear this, this is super important, This isn't just a filler sentence. This is an important sentence. God is a relational God who wants to be present with those he loves us, right? Because he created and he chose us as a gift to himself. He created and then he chose us as a gift to himself. This morning, I'm not going to dive deep into it. Just a glance at Isaiah chapter 43 this morning. If, you have, if you're in a place of needing a chapter of the Bible to spend some time in this week, I would, if you haven't read Isaiah 43 in a while, I'm just giving it to you for your personal quiet time with Jesus this week. It's beautiful, right? Meditating on the heart of God for his people as we see it expressed in this chapter. The whole chapter speaks to the nature, listen, it speaks to the nature of God as one who fights for and defends his children. 
fights for and defends his children. Recognize in Isaiah 43, the people of God are on their journey of obstacles. They're literally in captivity in Babylon with no home under an oppressor who is not their people, the Babylonians. Okay? So that's the, that's the journey, the journey of obstacles, and they're struggling, identity crisis, struggling with who they are. They, by faith, have to believe the words of God through Isaiah because that's not their felt experience in the moment. And so Isaiah is prophetically speaking things that are true that aren't yet but are going to be. You see how that works, the nature of faith. He's speaking these words. God's saying, all right, hey, this is who I am in the middle of your journey filled with obstacles. He comes to them, and the whole chapter again speaks to the nature of God. Verse 5 specifically says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. If there's no other sentence in the world, right, that we ever hear from God, let it be that one. Hey, guys, do not be afraid. I am with you. That makes me feel better. I read it this week. The reason I just stopped on it and highlighted it and bolded in my notes because I read it in prep, and I'm like, oh, I just feel better, right? Nothing's changed, but I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. In the chapter, I love that he kind of gives these self-descriptors God does. He calls himself their God. I love that. I am your God. Their God. He says, I am your creator. He says, I am your king. King language, super important. Much more, means much more to them than it does to us because they lived in a kingdom we don't. But king language speaks to ultimate authority. I am your king, a protector. The role of a king was to guard, fight for, and protect. It's a very specific language to describe himself. He says, I am the one who blots out your sin. I am your Lord. It's powerful self-descriptures. God names himself this because he wants to define for them how they are to see him in their lives. And then in verse 21, after clearly stating to them that he has a clear plan to save them, right, to save them from this, from this captivity, when he talks about the paths that he is creating to lead them out of captivity, the sustaining spiritual water and probably physical water that he has planned for them to provide while they're in the desert, he makes a powerful and clarifying statement about you, about them, about me, and about humanity. This is one of those verses that you, you sit in for a minute. Second half of verse 20 to verse 21 says this, you can follow along the screen. I, God speaking, provide water in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. You can think of that physically. You can just think about that in a literal sense and just in the context of life, spiritually, everything else, right? But what's going on, though, in your wildernesses and your streams, there are streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. You see that for his own pleasures, as the KJV says, formed us for his pleasures so we can proclaim his praise. Have you ever thought about, like, why did God create me? Why did he form you? He formed you for himself, as a gift to himself. Listen, 
I love the S of standing life provision, sustaining life provision promised for us and all of our wastelands because he chose us. And because, and I love this, because he, he's immutable, we talked about last week, because he's unchanging, he can never unchoose us. He formed us, and he formed us for himself. We are a gift that he designed for himself, just like any child is a gift to their parents when they are born. See, what I want you to see this. What we see here is not the language of a God speaking about those he formed. He's speaking, honestly, about the language of a parent. This past week, um, T- Taylor and Kelly Chastain, Taylor plays bass up here, and they, they, they do greet sometimes once, about once a month. They gave birth to a little Dakota, right? You'll probably see it this week in, in, our, in our newsletter. I text Taylor on Friday and said, how is it being a dad? You know how he answered. It's the greatest thing ever, dude. All right? Exclamation point. Exclamation point. I didn't have to ask the question. I wanted to ask the question, though, as a gift to him so he could let me know how often it was. That's the whole reason, right? In this, Dakota is the greatest gift he and Kelly have ever received in these verses, that's what I want you to see. God is a loving and perfect parent who chose us and formed us for himself as a great gift to himself. Never forget what we read last week, the quote from, the quote from Augustine. It's on the screen. It says, for thou hast formed us for thyself, or God, you formed us for yourself. And our hearts, they are restless till we find Rest in the only one we were designed to ultimately live with in your presence for eternity with in fullness. We were designed for him. He designed us for himself. And this isn't some self or self-selfish thing. This isn't an arrogant thing. It's just simply a parental thing. Humans were designed and created by God for God. He created us. For himself, it is no different than any of us who are parents in here. Why did you have kids? You had them for yourself. All the reason you have kids is because you were designed in his image and he wanted to have kids. Why did you have kids? So you could just spend sleepless nights full of feedings and crying all night long. Right? You have kids so you'd have someone to demand and steal time away from your hobbies just so you could watch your kids on a cold, blustery February afternoon or morning pick their nose in the outfield and miss every ball that comes to them and just cheer. And like, and you're like yeah, yeah. I love you. You're so great. Right? Did you do it so you could supply their brand new wardrobe while you're still wearing cargo jeans from the 90s? No, man. You had kids, and you love everything about what I just said for yourself. You love sitting out there. Listen, I have vivid memories 
of sitting at a skills assessment for softball as a coach for both of my kids, literally wearing thermal underwear, right? I had my complete snowsuit on that I fish in, my head covered, head all the way covered, right? Literally sitting there in 25-degree weather watching these poor girls wear short sleeve shirts while I'm bundled up with a heater on me, right, doing skills assessment. It is one of my favorite memories, but if my kids hadn't been there, I would have hated every minute of it. We have kids for, you have kids for yourself. Because God created and formed you for himself. It wasn't selfish. It was for enjoyment. A couple of weeks ago, I tried to cry. I think Sarah's watching online. AK's probably dead asleep. About three weeks ago, Randall's out of town. I went to Sarah. Hey, dude, what you got going on tonight? Nothing. I said, you want to go to Atlanta? She's like, can we dress? Let's dress up, Dad. It'll be so fun. I'm like, yes. <clears throat> we get in the truck, drive down to Atlanta. I, I said, look, look at Sarah. Hey, should we invite AK? She's like, do you want AK to go? I said, I always want AK to go. She's like, I want AK to go. I said, you call her and invite her. Okay, I invite her. She goes, yeah, yeah. Can you pick me up in my dorm? Absolutely. So we drive down to Georgia Tech. We get to her dorm. Sarah runs in. They come out giggling and laughing, hopping the truck, right? We go to the swanky restaurant because they're worth it. We walk in. I'm just being straight honest. Sarah's going mad. Every guy like this. Like that, right? We walk in. My girls are good looking. I'm just saying straight. They didn't glance at me. Nobody glanced at me. So the guys went, like, what? Why is the old guy with them, right? And I walk in, we had the time of our life. We just sat there and laughed. We talked about the food. We laughed at the person next to us who was, who was super high maintenance, weren't they, Sarah, right? We started laughing at them and making fun of them. Totally unchristlike, but it was great fun, right? And I sat there in the moment, and I, th- and I said to myself, the old pa- the past is gone. They're not little girls anymore. But the new has come, and I love this. These are my adult girls that I get to do life with and laugh and talk about subjects that you couldn't talk about back in the day. You know what I'm getting at, right? We've just changed, and I thought to myself, God, I'm so glad that Randall and I created and formed them so that we could do life with them and enjoy them. That's you, and that's God. That's you, and that's God. Listen, what this confirms for me is this. You, we were designed by God to live in his presence because he enjoys us. We were designed by God to live in his presence because he enjoys us. Listen, it's okay. You were designed by God uniquely formed as you are, obstinate and stubborn and frustrating and a little bit annoying sometimes, a little high maintenance sometimes. You were designed by God just as you are, and he enjoys you. So this begs the question, why, why, don't, we, why don't we experience 
and enjoy God's presence? Why don't we live our lives for that? Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, I've named it the last two weeks. I would encourage you, if you've never read it, it's one of my top three books ever. He asked the question this way. This will be on the screen. I'm going to have him ask it because he's better at asking questions than I am. He says, with the veil removed by the rending of Jesus' flesh. We talked about last week. Because Jesus died, like with the veil removed, with nothing on God's side to prevent us from entering, why do we tarry without? Why do we consent to abide all our days just outside the Holy of Holies and never enter at all to look up on God? Genesis 3.8 was our focus last week, and one of the primary verses we talked about the, the, the beauty and the tragedy and it's around creation of Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. We can put this on the screen for me. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? Because they had sinned. They had taken a step of disobedience, right? We said the beauty of that verse is that God was walking, looking, walking in the cool of the garden, probably an everyday affair, right? Recognizing he wanted to be with them in their presence. And when he couldn't find them, he didn't go, oh, well, he cried out to them and says, where are you? Hey, Hey, where, where are you? It's a beautiful picture of his desire to, to look for us, to chase after us, to come after us, right? The story of the prodigal father who comes, this man is running down that hill to come be with his dirty, stinky son, right? It's a beautiful picture of this loving God, right? He created us for himself, and he wants to be in our presence. But we also see the tragedy of the verse, don't we? The tragedy that in this moment when the presence of God was 100% available to them, they're missing out on him because they couldn't come into his presence because of the shame of their disobedience. And, and that tragedy, that tragedy should cause us to be introspective and ask, where am I missing the presence of God in my life? And why? Where am I missing it and why? Again, this morning, look at just five quick things, possible reasons. And again, I want to invite you. Here's the deal. I'm asking you, please, spend time with the Lord this week to begin to highlight and name your own obstacles, the things that are keeping you from his presence. Number one, number one reason keeping us from God's presence is ignorance. We just don't know any better. We just don't know any better. A quote that I've used probably ten times at Vintage. I'm going to use it again from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and with sex and selfish ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. For so many of us, we've been taught a faulty, listen, we've been taught a faulty works-oriented discipleship instead of be with God and enjoy his presence and then be shaped into his image as we behold his beauty discipleship. I'm going to say that phrase again because all those words are important to me. In this place, a be with God and enjoy God 
be shaped into his image as we behold his beauty type discipleship. The idea that when I get into the presence of God, he is so powerful and he's so glorious and he's so majestic that when I get into his presence, it is so radiant like the sun that this being in his presence begins to melt away and melt me into the image of who he sees me to be. That's, his, that's the power of his presence. The power of his presence. Yes, God calls us to obedience. That's imperative. God calls us to personal responsibility in the context of my relationship with Jesus and in my spiritual walk. But it has to be done. I have to obey and I have to take personal responsibility and the confident knowledge that I'm a son and a daughter who's been chosen by him, created by him, and enjoyed by him. If I don't do that, then it's work-oriented, trying to earn something like the elder brother from the prodigal son story. I release you from that. Second thing, this is apathy, the great word from the Old Testament, slothfulness, right? Or laziness, apathy, slothfulness, laziness. I love how just direct Proverbs is. So Proverbs 19.15, just one sentence sums up the whole thing. It says, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Simple proverb, right? You're like, oh. That makes sense. That's the nature of wisdom words, right? Wisdom language. Slothfulness or laziness or apathy casts us into a deep sleep. And as we're idle, a person will suffer hunger. Like if I'm thirsty, this is how it is. If I'm thirsty and I sit there all day long and think about how thirsty I am, is my thirst ever quenched? No. I have to get up, grab a cup, pour some water and then put it to my lips, drink it, and then swallow it, right? There are pieces to that. I have to engage that with responsibility. I have a, an effort I put into that. But, but in this, you know what I'm getting at here, our apathy, our laziness, as if we celebrate, so a lot of times we celebrate the knowledge of what is true without actually experiencing what is true. Man, I can sit with my seminary professors all day long in the Bible backwards and forwards, and I start talking about their personal relationship with Jesus, and I'm not even sure they're Christians sometimes. Right? We can know all about it, we can know all about it, but not know him. Third, busyness. Busyness. Listen, in our culture, busyness, unfortunately, has become a badge of honor. Say, how are you? Oh, I'm just so busy. And I'm supposed to take away from that how important you are. Right? How do I know this? Because I do the same thing for myself, right? Such as a pastor. Oh, Steve Howard. Oh, my gosh. It's been such a busy week. Oh, you're the best pastor in the history of the world. Thank you for serving us. Right? That's how we function as human beings. Our busyness is a badge of honor. At least so goes the thinking of so many of us. But don't ever forget the familiar verse from Psalm 46.10 that says the real story. Be busy and know that I am God. Right? That's what it says, right? Be busy and know. No, it says be still. Be still and know that I am God. Listen, again, isn't it just super practical? This is hyper-spiritual. Busy people don't have deep relationships. It just is what it is. Busy people don't have deep relationships. Slow and intentional people who are still with their friends and their spouse and their children 
have deep relationships. It's just practical. In our busyness, we can get so busy, we become like a ship passing in the night with all of our relationships. Listen, Randall and I get to a point where we find ourselves and 90% of our conversations revolve around vintage, which is a business for us. So we give ourselves to with a job, which means therefore 90% of our conversations can just become about where we work rather than about how we're doing, how our heart is, how we're feeling, what Jesus is teaching us, where our struggles are. Business conversations aren't intimate conversations. Intimate conversations are intimate conversations, right? Personal conversations. So this idea of our busyness, we need to be still. We need to make sure that we're spending time. Busyness affects the health of all of our relationships. You can't be close to someone you never have time for. Just practical. Fourth thing that keeps us from the presence of God, pain and suffering. Pain and suffering. I have great compassion here. There's no condemnation. But have you known people? Have you ever gotten to a point yourself where you're hurting so bad the idea of being around somebody just is repulsive? The idea of having a conversation with God, it's just too much. Pain and suffering has this point. I always think about the the poor guys on on the road to Emmaus. Les Beecham one time heard a story. He's a pastor friend of ours out in Omaha, and he just did a whole message about this. I'm going to give you the five-minute version, two-minute version. But he said, he said, you know, when, when these guys are walking the road to Emmaus and Jesus walks up, they don't recognize him. And so most of us have been taught over the years that because Jesus was keeping them from recognizing Jesus, and that's probably true, but there's also a really high likelihood that their, their, their hope, their hopes have been so crushed and dashed by the death of Jesus that they could barely function at every took everything they had inside of them just to walk back home from Jerusalem that when Jesus walked up they probably didn't want him there and they probably could barely even raise their heads enough to even look and to see who it was that was walking with them because their pain and their suffering was just so much it kept them from raising their heads up high likelihood that's a part of what's going on Our pain and our suffering, and God has great compassion for this, great tenderness in this. When I took a class at seminary on uh, the theology of pain and suffering, a real barn burner, we came upon this scripture right from Psalm 34, 18. We know it, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Promise, right? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted 100% of the time because he's faithful, and 100% of the time he saves the crushed in spirit. I added the 100%, but it's true, okay? So I I remember sitting in this, I remember sitting in this tension and reading about God's nearness, saving the crushed in spirit. I was meditating on it and thinking about the theology of pain and suffering, and I began to just pray. I said, God, just, I just ask, just prayerfully, God, would you help me to reconcile this tension? And, and God gave me a picture. I'll share it with you, and I encourage you to pray for your own picture. But I, as I began to pray into it, I, I, God gave me a picture of two people. And the two people, hear this, the two people were embracing And they were broken. There was a woundedness. There was tears in their eyes as I'm seeing this picture. And they were embracing. And I had this picture and got this knowledge like this. In the moment I knew, oh, those people are embracing one another, but they can't see each other. 
Doesn't that happen when you embrace somebody? Have you ever seen that from people and they're coming back from war and they like surprise somebody and what do they do? They go in and hug them and they hug them for like three seconds and they push them away because being so near they couldn't see them. They have to push them away just so they can see them and make sure it's really them. And I feel like I was saying, like, that's what happens, Steve, in your broken places when you're crushed in spirit, just like Jesus was with them and they couldn't recognize, I draw you in and I embrace you so tight, you might not be able to see me, but my promise is I'm with you. I can't not be with you. And all I'm getting at this morning is an encouragement to you. If you're crushed in spirit, isn't that a great phrase? You know it. You feel it. When you're crushed in spirit and you can't sense God's presence, it's because he's so near to you and he's embracing you. And all I'm saying is, God, I can, it's okay I don't see you. I just know that you're present with me. And I'm saying that that's the point I'm inviting you into in that moment. Say, God, would you just make me where my mom is? I'm not trying to play the emotional card here. This is just what happened. When my mom passed away, I said to God, where are you? I can't see you. And he said, I'm holding you, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, and I knew his presence with me. And I just encourage you with that, to pray into that, just ask God to awaken that that's you in the moment. Pain and suffering, it's a real thing, and it can keep you from experiencing the presence of God. And there's no condemnation, that high, high level of compassion. That's why Jesus is with you. That's the compassion, right? It's the compassion. And the fifth thing, super, super simple. I say super simple, not at all. Um, that keeps us from the presence of God, but it's just a reality. Our unholy self-life, our unholy self Life. Scripture talks in multiple places about the duality we wrestle with as Christians, right? It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit, our old self and our new self. Paul paints the pictures in familiar verses from Romans chapter 5, excuse me, 8, 5 through 8. For those who live on the screen, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and it's peace. For the mind that's on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Listen, I don't think I need to unpack all of this, because I think intuitively you understand what I'm getting at. That tension that you wrestle with, whether it's sin issues, whether it's just apathy issues, whether it's just things that you give yourself primarily to, they don't necessarily sin, but they just steal from your time and your relationship with God, right? What does it look like in your life? One piece that Tozer talked about, he called it, he said, yes, the veil may have been torn from Jesus to us, but we may have allowed a veil of the self-life to be erected in our life. The veil of the self-life. It's the life that we live that we rarely acknowledge and secretly feel ashamed by, he says. It's the life of self-focus. Where we live our lives, right? We live our lives and focus on self-confidence, really having confidence in Jesus. Where we, in the moment, have self-sufficiency rather than finding sufficiency in Jesus. We have self-admiration as the aspiration of our heart rather than admiring God. And we have self-love and wanting people to fight for us and to not push back against us, right? Rather than loving God and loving our neighbors. The life where you get to the end of the day and realize you haven't really thought about God all day long because you've trusted yourself. 
your own abilities, your own authority, your own power, and you fought for yourself, if you're honest, in everything that you did for that day. And your offense was always how people did not serve you, affirm you, and encourage you. That's the self-life. That's the veil of the self-life that we erect in our lives, right? And we come home and we're looking to self-medicate rather than God-medicate. And so it's the tension of the unholy self-life as an obstacle. All right. So in this, hearing, there are three takeaways for us this morning. Hearing the affirming this is beautiful. I meant to say this earlier, but and it's on the screen, so I apologize. But hearing the affirming, unchanging truth of how God sees you. Say it again. Hearing. So hearing from God, the affirming, unchanging truth of how he sees you will in time break the power of rejection, condemnation, and shame the, fin- the enemy feeds you every day. I'll say that again. Hearing the affirming, unchanging truth of how God sees you will in time break the power of rejection, condemnation, and shame. The enemy feeds you. Why? Because truth in time always dispels lies. And if we begin to continue to tell ourselves the truth about how, how God views us and he creates us for himself, Recognizing I may have sin issues I need to deal with, and I might have an unholy self-life, but even in that, he's still for me. He still designed me. He still created me for himself. Just like when my kids, who may not be perfect, who may actually be hurting me by decisions that they're making, my love for them and my desire to be near them is unchanged. That's the beginning point this morning. Second, we were designed by God on the screen. We were designed by God to live in his presence because he enjoys us. Which then leads to the third part. What are the obstacles keeping you from God's ever-available, life-giving presence? What is it? As the worship team comes and we go into a time of ministry, that we're done. So this morning, I want to encourage you. And just letting you know we're done. I'm done. You can like, all right. I just want you to take time and process those three things. I want you to, to process that fact, right? The, listen. Listen to those words he's forming that against me. Whatever the words may be this morning that just that stuck with you. You were formed and fashioned and chosen by God as a gift to himself. Do you believe that? Maybe this morning I had to pray, God, would you awaken the truth of your desire and affection and your desire to be in my presence? God, so that the truth could overtake the lies of shame and condemnation and rejection that crush me. Every single day. Process that you were designed by God then to live in his presence. And you will enjoy it because he's enjoyable. And so they say, so God, I don't want, so this is the prayer. He says, God, God, that's true. I don't want any obstacles in the way. Would you just put your finger on the obstacles, God, and give me grace to be obedient, to release those, and to repent and turn from them so that I can turn to you and be amazed by your radiance and allow the radiance of your beauty to then shape me into the image of who you want me to be. That's who I want to be, God. Not the own image of myself that I've created, but I want your image of me. So Jesus, as we come into this time of ministry and worship, 
I just pray, God, that you would shape us, that you would change us. You would awaken us to truth and we'd be undone by it, God. Even now, I'm asking for a supernatural move of your spirit, God. Would you come this morning and would you awaken us? God, would you fill us again where the enemy has stolen and killed and brought destruction in our lives? God, the places that we've shown apathy, we've chosen apathy, God, to be slothful. God, we're just not getting up and at least putting forth the responsibility and obedience, God, to drink of you. Scripture says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. That's our responsibility, and then Christ will shine on you. That's 99% of it. We have to get ourselves up, Jesus. We're not working at it. It's just our responsibility. God, the cup of your spirit is in front of us. And you're just saying, come, drink, all who are thirsty, and I will give you living waters. Thank you for your presence.